We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. We're going to read Exodus chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 13. We're in the middle of the in-law visit when we pick up. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? While all these people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. And Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work's too heavy for you, and you can't handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. And that will make your load lighter because they'll share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. And he chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they served as judges for the people at all times, and the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to help us to understand how we can empower leadership. Lord, to understand that we can't do it all ourselves, that we need help. That, Lord, we would see in our own hearts that so often it is that we take on more than you've ever called us to take on. And, Lord, I pray that you would see, help us to see today that there is a spiritual gifting that God has given each and every person. And that, Lord, we are to answer that call in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Old Jethro follows Moses to work, and he watches for as long as he can. But what Jethro sees is a pattern in Moses' life that just is non-sustainable. Because Moses is doing what a lot of us have done throughout the years. And that is, is that he has taken on more than he could possibly do. How many of you, if you're honest today, are either in the middle of that right now, or you have been there at some point in your life? There aren't enough hours in the day. It is impossible. You can't please all the people all the time. You're burning the candle at both ends, and yet Moses is feeling like, I'm the only person in the world who can possibly do this, so put it all on my shoulders, and somehow I'll get it all done. I'm going to tell you, if we're going to empower leadership, the first thing that we've got to do, number one, number one, we've got to recognize the need. We've got to recognize the need. 
I think it's fascinating here that after Jethro watches all of this and he sees how overburdened Moses is, he recognizes something, and that is the job is absolutely too big. That there is way more of this than what Moses can handle. And what he also sees is that if Moses spends every bit of his time doing this, that there are a lot of things that Moses ought to be tending to that Moses is not spending any time with. Because he's spending all of his time with every dispute and every problem and every issue that there are major things that the nation needs to be focused on, but Moses has no time for that. And he recognizes too that Moses is in a situation where it's not getting better, it's getting worse. How many of you are over-ambitious on your list every day? In other words, you start the day and you think, I'm going to get all of this done. But at the end of the day, you never have it all done. So the next day starts with a list just as long as the day before. But the problem is, is that you've still got to make up for yesterday today. And it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And before you know it, you have dug a hole that's so big that you look up and you say, there's absolutely no way. There's no way that I can do all of this. But because you've kind of created this, you don't know how to get out of it. You don't know how to move. That's where Moses is. And Jethro looks at him, and it's amazing, because he looks at Moses, his own father-in-law, and he gets right to the point. Now, I have found in life that there are people that have been spiritually gifted with the ability to be able to say hard things to people in ways that don't offend them. But most people fall under one of two camps. They either don't mind saying it, but they also don't mind being offensive. Or they don't say anything at all and they just let it go and the problems build and build and build. But somehow Moses and Jethro have a good enough relationship that Jethro can show up and tell the leader of God's people that he isn't doing it right. In fact, if you look at what he said, it's actually real simple. He looks at him and he says quite simply, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, what you are doing is what? Verse 17, what you are doing is not good. That's about as simple as it gets. And the reason is because it's not sustainable. And when we think about in our own lives what it is that we can handle, what it is that we can do, the question is, how many of you want to be in this for the long haul? How many of you actually want to serve the Lord until the day you die? How many of you are saying right now, I want to be faithful to the end? I don't want to burn out. I don't want to quit. I don't want to give up. Yet every time we turn around, burnout is the, is the word we hear all of the time. We hear it in ministry. Uh, probably, you not. maybe it is that you hadn't heard these stats, but people are leaving the ministry all the time. Pastors, ministers, they're quitting all the time. And one of the, almost... All of them are citing. Sometimes it's moral failure. Sometimes it's other issues. But the predominant theme is it's burnout. But it's not just in ministry. It's in every other vein. You work with people who are burnout. Some of you are burnout. Some of, the, some of you know that I can't keep living the way that I'm living. You don't know what you're going to do, but you just know that this isn't going to work. We've got to have a way that we look and see, you know what, there are times when I've taken on too much, I've done too much, I've said yes to too much, I've got too much going on in my life, and sometimes with most of you, because I can look at you and tell, you had not said yes to bad things necessarily. It's not that any one thing that you've said yes to is something that you could look at and say, that's heinous, that's evil, you shouldn't have done that. 
But what happens is, even if you say yes, like Moses, to many good things, the good can crowd out the great because then when you need the energy and you need the time and you need the resources to pour it into what really matters, you, can't, you don't have it because you're spread too thin. So we've got to learn to recognize the need. But secondly, secondly, we've got to learn to share the load. Look at the advice he gives. It's really pretty simple. In verses 21 and 22, Jethro comes to Moses and he says, look, this is easy. Appoint some people to help you out. In fact, look around, find some people that love the Lord, that fear God and who are trustworthy, and put them in charge. Some of them, some of your better folks, put them in charge of thousands. Second tier, put them in charge of hundreds, all the way down to tens, where you're not doing this every day. And you can spend your time, when it comes to something that's really difficult and really problematic, then they come to you. But you can spend the rest of the time doing what God called you to do instead of spending every waking hour of the day getting behind. When we share the load, we understand that when it comes to church life, that every member is called to be a minister. Every member called to be a minister. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think it is fantastic when we see young women and young men surrender to ministry. I pray to God that we continue to see more vocational callings placed on people's lives. But that being said, I fear that far too often, and I'm thankful that this isn't the case here, But far too often, people have seen a ministerial vocational calling as the ones who are called to do the work of the church. That we need people who are going to work with youth and work with the choir and preach and do those things. And those people are going to be who's called to do the ministry of the church. And it's because of a misunderstanding of what a minister is actually called to do. But if you take a little moment and you were to read Ephesians chapter 4, especially verses 11 through 13, it tells you that the job of the minister is not to do all the work of the ministry. The work of the minister is actually to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, which means that all of us come together and we understand there's a need to share the load, that you shouldn't do everything and you shouldn't do everything, but we should all be doing something, amen? I was told something years ago, I'll say, somebody told me that in churches that often you'll find that 20% of the people give 80% of the money. I have absolutely no idea whether that's true because I don't look at the financial donations of individual members. But I can tell you what's not true at this church, and I'm thankful for that. And that is that we don't have 20% of the people doing 80% of the ministry. When I spend a lot of time in a lot of sick and unhealthy churches, One of the signs of sickness and unhealth is when you find a small group of people who are doing everything. And the reason is, is because you'll find in those people, they're people that love the Lord and they love Jesus and they've got a servant's heart, but they've said yes to everything. But yet if you get them behind closed doors, they've gotten to a place where they don't even want to do it anymore because they're burnt out. And what we're telling you is there's not a need to do everything, but there's a need to do something. That everyone takes responsibility. That every member understands themselves as a minister. That everyone understands that we share the load. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We're going to talk in just a minute a little bit more about some particular ways. But but first, I want to talk to you about something that is completely paradoxical in the world we live in. I came across an article a while back. It's not even a, not a, not a Christian article per se, but it was about a man uh, that simply got to looking at his life. His name's Andrew Wilkinson. 
And he just decided he didn't like the way his life was going. Hated his job, frustrated, angry, just thought that it was too much, didn't enjoy things, was getting to a point where he said, you know what, something's got to change. He was at a breaking point. He's a lot like Moses in, in this chapter. So he developed something, and I love this phrase. He said, I've got to come up with some anti-goals in my life. Some anti-goals. Now let me explain what that is. A goal is what? Something that you want to achieve. We're constantly talking to our kids, as we should be. You need to be goal-oriented. You need to have things that you desire to achieve. Where are you trying to get, and how are you trying to get there? But along with goals, there's got to be some anti-goals, too. In other words, if I'm going to accomplish the goals in my life, there have to be some things that I can't do, that I'm not going to do. Because if I'm going to spend all of my time doing these things, I'm never going to do the things that really matter matter. And what happened was he began to look at his life and he began to realize that he didn't hate everything about his life. He didn't hate everything about his job, but he was spending so much time doing the things that he did hate that he never had time to do the things that he actually was good at and felt called to and felt like he ought to be doing. And so he came up with this theory of the anti-goal. And what that simply means is, is that all of us ought to be looking at our lives and realize that we aren't called to do everything, that something's got to go. But we've been lied to since we were children. And we've told, been told, you can have it all, you can be it all, and you can do it all. And I want you all to hear me, you can't. You can't have it all, you can't be it all, you can't do it all. There's absolutely no way. You will live your life frustrated and mad and angry and depressed and anxious if you buy into those lies. You can do some things and you can do them well, which is one of the reasons why in ministry and in life, it shouldn't be the goal to do everything. It ought to be the goal to figure out what it is that God has called you to do and do that extremely well. If you know anything about geese, you probably already know this. You're never going to see geese flying haphazardly. You don't just see a, a flock of geese, and they're not just up there randomly. But every time when they lift off the ground, the first thing they do when they get to altitude is they get into a certain formation. Does any, do any of you know what, what, the forma what formation do geese fly in? It's a V. And that's not accidental. This is incredible. They fly in a V formation because they fly 71% more effectively in a V formation than they would if they were not in a V formation. They actually use the aerodynamics of the geese that are in front of them to break the wind current so that they can cut through it. That's why they can fly hundreds and thousands of miles together because it comes pre-programmed into them. And what's so fascinating is, is that if you watch that formation, if one goose gets hurt, something happens to it, not only does that goose as it goes down, but two other geese will leave the formation and follow that goose to the ground. Also, the goose that you see leading, the one in the front of the V, it's not always the same goose in the front. They rotate out because the one in the front of the V is actually the one that's flying the hardest. It's the most difficult because he's the one cutting the wind at the front. If you also notice when you hear geese flying by, you'll hear something. When they are I mean, all, and it is loud. You know, if you've ever heard a geese honk, it, it can actually be, I mean, you can hear it from all the way across a lake. You can hear it coming across a field, and it is loud. It's almost to the point that it's obnoxious. But do you know which geese are the ones honking? It's not every one of them in the formation. The geese that are honking are the geese in the back. Why? 
They're honking from the back because they're encouraging the ones in the front. Hey, keep flying. Because that goose knows that at some point, it's going to rotate up and it's going to be the one in the front. And it's not going to have the easiest job anymore. It's going to have the hardest job. And I'm reading all this about geese and I'm flabbergasted. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you don't believe in God, that illustration alone ought to tell you that there's a God in heaven that can engineer a goose a goose to know that. Yet when we get into God's church, sometimes we can learn a lot from geese. Sometimes it's a time to lead. Sometimes it's a time to follow. Sometimes you're the one bearing the strain, and sometimes you're the one in the back honking. Right? Sometimes you're the one that's just encouraging those people that are around you. But when we come together, we share the load. We recognize the need. We share the load. Number three. Number three. We match the gifts. He chose capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. He takes the advice. I said he's one of the humblest people that we find. He doesn't look at his father-in-law and say, hey, go back to the bushes. Nobody asks you. Just drop my kids off and get out of here. I'll run this show my way. He actually looked at him and realized, you know what, this makes some sense, and I've got to do something different. So I've got to match some gifts up, and we're going to do some things differently. And I want you to know something. If you're saved, if Christ is the Lord of your life, you have a spiritual gift. That's guaranteed. Every one of you has a spiritual gift that's saved. You say, well, I don't know what that is. That's okay. But it's not okay not to figure it out. God wants you to look into your heart and figure out what it is that he has given you to bless the church. Because he didn't give you that gift for you. He gave you that gift for the church, and he wants you to use it going forward. Now, you say, well, I don't know how to find it. Three really simple ways to figure out your spiritual gift. Number one, you ought to be in the Word of God. You ought to be in the Word of God. Number two, real simple, ask God. Lord, would you show me what my spiritual gift is? And number three, this is super practical. Try something. Try something. People, I hear this all the time. Well, I just don't know. I don't know if I'd be good at it. Well, have you ever tried it? No. Well, I don't know whether you'll be good at it either. But try it and see. And I can tell you that you're going to find some things that are not your spiritual gift if you try some things. You're going to figure out that's not what I'm called to. Every time someone sits by me when we are singing, they will look over at me and they will say, that is not your spiritual gift. There's a lot of things. If I made a list of the things I'm good at, and then I made a list of the things I'm not good at, there's a, the list of things I'm not good at is huge. There's only a few things that I'm good at, and some of those I'm not real good at. Why do I tell you that? Because don't be scared to get involved and to try something, and if it's not what you, you figure out that's not what I'm called to do, that's okay. But we also need to remember that when we get involved in the service of God's army, then when we're called into the kingdom of God, that the results are not up to us. I try to remind you of that all the time. Success is not in the results. Success is in obedience. You do what God has called you to do. You be available. You say yes to God's calling. You find your place. Now, one of the things we want to be clear about at First Baptist Summit is we don't want you doing everything. If you're over-involved and overstretched, then you're not going to do things well. It's just like in your life. You need to figure out what it is that God has called you to do, but then do it well. 
It's not just people that do this, that have a problem and need to hear this. It's organizations. It's churches. So we want to put the right people in the right ministry, and we want to be sure that in doing that, we understand, obviously, that Jesus is the focus of it all. Now, here's where I think, I've told, told you where I think sometimes that church membership at times has failed because they see ministry for professionals, and we don't realize that nobody is a professional, that there are no professionals in ministry, that everybody's called to get into the game. But I'll tell you where I, I'll admit that I think we as ministers have probably made some big mistakes in helping people to find their spiritual gifts, and that's this. Far too often, we need to understand that even if you are spiritually gifted at something, when you are just getting involved, just starting, just serving, you are not going to be great at it. It takes practice. It takes involvement. So not everybody is going to jump into a ministry and be immediately fantastic. I don't know why people even expect that of themselves. We get involved. We learn. We grow. It's like anything else. So what we've got to see in people, because we're all sinners, even the people that are great at something mess up from time to time. And so what we've got to see in people is not just whether or not they are perfect at it, whether they're even excellent at it. We've got to be a people, and I've got to do a better job of this, and you've got to do a better job of this, of seeing the potential in people, of saying, you know what? They may not be quite where they need to be yet, but I see potential, and they're getting there. I'd never heard of him in my life, but weeks ago, I came across a, an incredible story about a baseball scout. In fact, most people have regarded him as the greatest baseball scout that ever lived. His name is Tony Lisiardello. And the fascinating thing about him is he was stationed in the Midwest, not a place that's known for raging baseball talent because of the temperatures there and how difficult it is to play year-round. But they, they classify scouts in different ways about how they go about it. But the reason that Tony had such a better track record over the years than everybody else did is that the majority of scouts go and they're looking for the person that not only has all the tools, but a person who is as close to perfect and ready to step into the majors or even into the minors immediately. But over the course of Tony's life, he began to find a niche because he began to look for ball players that had the tools, that had ability, but he could tell there was just something that was keeping them back. Maybe it was a hitch in their swing. Maybe it was just a little something about the way that they were delivering the pitch. Maybe it was something that he realized if they faced a little better competition, if they had a little bit better coaching, this kid could really be something. And he ended up scouting and signing kids that nobody else wanted, but blossomed into absolutely incredible major league athletes and baseball players because he looked past some of the minor faults to see not what they were at that moment on the field, but to see what they could become. And as I'm reading about how he did that, I thought, oh, God, help me to be more like that, to look at people and say, hey, you know what? There might be a little bit of a hitch in their giddy-up. Maybe it is that they don't deliver the pitch perfect, but they've got ability and skill and God-given calling on their life. And so we need to be people that in the midst of that are recognizing that sometimes our job is to be like the geese in the back and to keep honking and to let them know to keep flying, to keep moving forward, to keep doing what you're doing because God is doing an incredible work in your life. We've got to be people who recognize the need and people who share the load, but also people that match the gifts. 
I think sometimes we forget. And I need you to hear me. I know it's some of you are getting hungry and you're ready, getting, you're looking at your watch, and I'm almost done, I promise. We're getting real close. So don't fade on me now. Can you give me about two and a half, three more minutes? If not, I'll just, I'm going to keep going anyway, but I just wanted to <laughs> see if you would. Listen to me. We can get so confused in church about why it is we're doing what we do. And sometimes, and I can say this because I'm Baptist, but all churches are guilty of this. Sometimes we, we, we get disillusioned that a new building is going to be what brings success to us. That a new program, that a new minister, that a new tool, that a new trip, that a new conference... That all of these things are what we need to do because these things are what are going to bring success. So, so let's try this and let's try that. And I'm reminded in Exodus 18 of something that is so simple when it comes to ministry. Ian Bounds said this, that while the church is looking for a better program, God is looking for better men. The church is trying to find schemes and ways and all of the other. But if we get right down to it, it's not about whether or not we can host a better concert. It's not about whether or not we can have a bigger building. It's not about whether we've gone to a better conference. It's not about where we go to youth camp. It's not about the quality of the speaker that is in front of us. It's about Jesus. And when we understand that it's about Christ, then all of a sudden we recognize that the way that this church is going to grow and your family is going to grow and that ministries are going to grow is that when we understand that it's not the program that grows it, it is the people behind the programs. It's that God is calling you and working in you. So friends, we're not looking for some magic stick that is going to help somehow make it all better. We're looking for you and you and you to answer the call, to recognize the need, to share the load, to match the gifts, and to recognize that all of us are called together to work so that none of us would fall down when we've just got these meters to go to finish the sprint, that all of us would be willing to recognize and look up and see that we are flying in formation together, that we are pointing one and all towards the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that because of that, we know that we are the method that God wants to use to advance the kingdom of God. Friends, I can tell you this. To get saved you had to recognize that you couldn't do it on your own. That's the fundamental part of the gospel, that I need Jesus to save me. I don't know why it is that sometimes after we get saved, we don't realize that even after we're saved, we need Jesus just as bad as we did before we were saved. We needed Him to save us, we need Him to equip us, and we need Him to move in and through us. So I'm asking you as a church to come together with me we want to be a church that is 100% all about Jesus, all about Scripture, all about the gospel, but is all about recognizing that we're coming together, that we're coming in formation to be a people who serve God with our whole heart, strength, and mind, and that we're all in this together, that we all are believing in each other, that we're all encouraging each other, and we're all going to serve together. That is the church that I desire to pastor, and I believe that's the church that you want to be a part of. I'm asking that you pray for that, that you hope for that, that you long for that. And if 
in your life you aren't doing what needs to be done so that that can happen, that today you would answer the call because it's God is worth it. While it is that the world looks for better methods, God is looking for better men and women, men like you and women like you, to answer the call.